Don't worry, spiders. I keep house, like Isa. Hello friends, and welcome to episode 15 of season 2 of So Poetry. This is going to be another solo episode. I think I started, I think I called them So Poetry on back at the beginning of the season, and I seem to have stopped that. I may or may not continue it, but at least calling them that, but whatever. This is just going to be me this time. Um, this is actually a first, kind of, for me. A friend of mine, uh, after the my last solo episode about the brief history of haiku, texted me and he said that he listened to the episode and really enjoyed it and that he hopes he hoped that I would continue with uh, haiku development in the West and you know through to contemporary haiku and. I had not planned on doing another episode of the of a brief history of haiku, but that got me thinking, and I was like, well, I mean, I've most of the research that I've done, which has comprised, has been primarily comprised of just reading introductions to most of the haiku books that I have, has been all in the development of haiku in Japanese, like how it how it got from, um, like haikai no renga through the hoku with Basho and all the other writers up to Shiki who made the break in the distinction and kind of modernized uh, how we view haiku, which when I was learning it was always, it was astounding to me that um, that this art that is like presumed to be this ancient thing that's always, you know, like Japanese poets have always been writing haiku, like not really they've been they've been writing things that could fit within that or i guess laying the groundwork for haiku but like haiku as as we contemporary audiences and consumers and poets and readers and writers of it know how what we know as haiku only really came about in like the early 1900s there's only as an art form haiku has really only been around for uh like 100 years ish or so um, and it's just, I, I don't know, that, that is interesting to me, that, um, you know, that it was really kind of one guy, and not only is that, it, is that, not only that haiku is a relatively recent invention, distinction, I don't know, whatever it is that you want to call it, it was that shift and that, uh, that break and that change of, of poetry was can really be kind of boiled down to like one guy and the disciples of that one guy um, but yeah so that most of most of my knowledge was has is, has been in haiku and development in Japan and I thought to myself well why not do see what I can find about how haiku developed in the West um, so this episode, um, now that all of that preamble is out of the way, will be part two of a brief, brief history of haiku, uh, where it will be primarily focused on, uh, haiku writing in English, and then 
even more specified in um, like in America in English. Uh, I've actually in in doing some research for this episode. I found a paper on haiku in in Hungarian, which got me thinking that um, I would actually like. I don't know if this is going to be a a consistent like you know every second uh, episode of a month will be another installment of a brief history of haiku, but they will be coming. And uh, I say that I don't know if it's going to be consistent because it will probably require a great deal of of um, effort and time and reading and research on my part to cobble together episodes on haiku development in languages other than Japanese and English. Um, because I know next to nothing about that. I know that, I know that haiku is being written in at least French and Spanish, Hungarian, apparently. Um, there might be some Russian haiku poets that are out there too. I want to say that I came across, uh, at least like an, an episode, like somebody, somebody that I, that was mentioned, um, in one of the things that I read. Maybe. Um, I want, I need to double check that. I mean, I'm sure that there are haiku poets, you know, all over in every language in every country. Um, I don't know if they've been given recognition or not, but so I, I will, I will do what I can to find, um, information on how haiku developed in other languages. Um, because I'm interested in that and I, I hope that other people were interested too, um, I don't know, because it's, it's neat to see how, you know, like tracking how the sonnet came about and then how it disseminated into other languages and other people doing stuff. Um, even though there were types of sonnet bef- sonnets before Shakespeare wrote them in other languages, but that's, that's not what this episode's about. I might do an episode on that, I don't know, maybe, if there's a groundswell of sonnet support, let me know and I'll do it. If not... I'm going to stick to the things that act that interest me. Um, so that being said, um, I feel like, like Shiki really is the, the kind of hinge point for all of this. Um, and that's where we left off last episode, more or less kind of abruptly, um, with around the 1900s, a little bit after that, um, Shiki as a um, uh, revivalist and revisionist, I guess, of, of haiku. Like he's he's the one who separated the hoku, like the beginning stanza of a of a long linked uh, uh, grouping of, of poetry. Um, separated the the opening stanza out into its own unique unit thing that can be dealt with independently from the rest of the you know the game that that kind of developed out of the Haikai no Renga, and um, he also divorced it from a lot of the spirituality and the Zen that it had been kind of ensconced in. Um, so for him, it was more or less kind of an agnostic practice. Um, he also championed the idea of drawing from your own life. Um, so there's, I think I mentioned this book, but there's a book by, I want to say it's edited by uh, Yasuda. Let me see if I can find it. Um, sorry, I'm... Uh, 
I cannot spell, or I cannot type and talk apparently at the same time. Um, I probably should edit this out, but we're just going to run with it. Actually, I'm going to uh, pause this episode right quick so I can go grab a book. But, I mean, you won't know that I'm, for you, no time will have passed. But for me, it will be maybe like a minute or two. So, I will be right back. It is Modern Japanese Haiku, an anthology by Mokoto Ueda. Um, I believe that I put this in the description in the last episode, I apologize for being slightly out of breath. I feel out of shape. Um, I just jogged both up and down the stairs. Um, yeah, so this collection is an anthology of contemporary haiku, um, or modern haiku that kind of run the gamut from... Um, like early 1900s to, I don't know, maybe middle of the century. Let me see if I can find the, um, yeah, so like 60s, 70s-ish. Um, so it's, it, uh, when was this published? It, it's not contemporary by today's standards, but was relative, relatively contemporary-ish at the time that it was published. It was published in 1976. Um, but there's a there's a really cool introduction that kind of tracks um, haiku, like kind of what I, I mean, a much, an even briefer summary or even briefer history of what I, than what I gave um, in my last episode or my last solo episode, but it deals, it talks about like what Shiki did and kind of other, there were other movements at the time that Shiki was around and writing and trying to revitalize haiku. Um, and they had, not all of them agreed with, um, with Shiki. Uh, there were some haiku poets, and I think I may have mentioned this in the last episode, that were heavily influenced by Wordsworth and Coleridge and Shelley and like the romantics that were writing in um, in Britain at the time that uh, were trying to create haiku in this kind of like if you read romantic poetry it's it's very like high emotion and kind of um, real like lofty things and you know lots of odes and lots of oh you know this is I'm I'm lifting these these things up into beauty and. I think it was Shiki. It's it's somewhere in this book, and I, I apologize that this is not one of the resources that I consulted this time through, um, but I should have. So the there's a pretty lengthy introduction, and then in modern uh, modern Japanese haiku, there's a pretty lengthy introduction, and then it's broken up into I don't know maybe like like twenty ish. Um, 20 or so poets that are haiku poets that are featured and each one of them has a little bit of a um, like a blurb you know like a brief historical kind of life blurb um, but in the introduction it lists like a lot of different views of what haiku should be or you know could be um, 
and like I was saying that there there were some that were that championed um, you know romanticism. There were some that championed surrealism. Um, you know, like using your imagination to to compose these things. So th the, to to ah, using your imagination um, or kind of hypotheticals or whatever to put yourself into into situation mentally into situations that you could write haiku from and not drawing from the stuff that actually happened to you, which um, Shiki was not in favor of as as far as i know that like his his um i think it's chasse is what he championed uh let's see if i can find it real quick um i believe that that's the term if it's in the wikipedia haiku um article which is actually surprisingly um has surprisingly good and in-depth information. There's actually another one that I, I pulled from for this particular episode. Um, anyway, I believe the term is sashay, um, but it is essentially the idea that you draw from your own life and the kind of mundane and the quotidian or whatever. Um, and it is that idea has since evolved, I think, into a representation of um, that you're not like you're not trying to elevate the mundane things into something that's beautiful it's more that you are um allowing yourself to be put into a state and i'll I'll get to how kind of zen the idea of zen and zen influence got repaired with with haiku um but sort of like you know like the zen moment or that you you deep it, like deep dive perceptually in into um into a moment or into a thing you can um, figure out its actual essence and see that there is beauty actually there. So you're you're not elevating stuff up into beauty. You're just sort of acknowledging that you know these moments, these small, um, sort of often missed moments, are as worthy as of our attention as other stuff. Um. So yeah. So most of the other, I want to say that most of the other ideas or views of haiku kind of lost out to shikis, and I. I don't know if it was because he was just more pro prolific. I'm, it's probably in the introduction, and I might make an, addend an, an addendum to it, uh, to this episode, to talk a little bit more about it. Um, I would, I, if not, I would recommend um, picking up a copy of Modern Japanese Haiku. I'll, I'll put a link in the in the whatever description for this episode. Um, it's a good read. But anyway, um, for whatever reason, and I probably should know this, but I don't. Anyway, uh, Shiki's view of haiku kind of wins out um there is i believe that there are some surrealist or not maybe surrealist but you know like um i want to say it's maybe gendai haiku um there's some people that i met at the last couple of uh, haiku north america con or conferences that I've, I've been to that push this idea of, of uh Gen i actually have a book by one of the guys um but i don't I've not spent a whole lot of time reading it to, to know exactly what it is. I'll see if I can, again, find some information and put it up. But um, I might save that that type of talk for more. Um, I'm going to do a contemporary haiku episode. I don't know when, but it will that will deal with more of like the state of haiku now within the last, you know, handful of decades or so. But anyway... All of that to say is that Shiki kind of was the Shiki was the game changer. Um, 
and uh, yeah, so most of the things that I found in in preparing for this episode kind of uh, charted the start of haiku's popularity in the West after World War II. Um, and there are a couple of, of people involved in that, um, which I, who I will get to in a little bit. Um, there was a little bit of a push. Um, one of the, it's the newworldencyclopedia.org. Um, there's an entry of haiku and then haiku in the West. Um, so there were some early scholars, um, such as Basil Hall Chamberlain, um, in like the late 1800s, early 1900s, and William George Aston, um, who dismissed Hoku's poetic value. Um, so this is around the time, maybe a little bit before Shiki was doing his stuff. Um, but the first advocate of English language haiku that we know of, or at least that's been that's been given this accolade, is a Japanese poet named uh, Yon Noguchi. Um, so in and then I'm I'm essentially reading from the from this article that uh, in a proposal to American poets published in Reader Magazine in February 1904. So this is around the time of Shiki. Um, Noguchi gave a brief outline of the hoku of the, of the hoku and some of his and um, some of his own English efforts. So writing a haiku in English, uh, ending with the exhortation: "Pray, you try Japanese hoku. Oh, pray you try Japanese hoku, my American poets." Um, so this was early 1900s, um, but not really, like the West wasn't, wasn't really ready. Um, but I believe that there were some introductions to, there had to have been some introductions to haiku back in like the mid to late 1800s because, um, there was a huge influx of, uh, Japanese prints into Europe at the time. And a lot of Impressionists were very much inspired by, um, by Japanese art. And so there's a, it's a term, uh, Japonism, um, from the French Japonism, which is J-A-P-O-N-I-S-M-E. Um, and it's the study of Japanese art and artistic talent. So there is a huge, there's like uh, Japanese art craze in Europe in the late eight, like the 1870s ish or so. So around the time of the Impressionism was really taking off and around the time that Romantic poets were writing in England. And I say this because in one of the books that I have, I got very close to the mic. I apologize for the loudness of that. Um, the, oh geez, what is the actual title of this? It is the Everyman's, Libra Everyman's Library Pocket Poets edition of Haiku, which, uh, selected and edited by Peter Washington. Um, it's a neat little book. This is, I think, the first haiku collection that I ever had, although it took me many, many years to actually read it and absorb it. Um, and in, in, uh, Peter's edited collection um he goes through like he sets it up with like you know 
poem or haiku about the moon, haiku about animals, haiku about birds, and then the seasons. And then we get to early Western attempts. And there are a couple by in here by Wordsworth and uh, Coleridge and Shelley and some other early like Hopkins and Swenson. I don't know. Uh, I know Hopkins. I don't know Swenson. Um, and it's really interesting to see very early attempts of like English in of English haiku. And I feel like with the the like the Japanese art craze in Europe in the 1800s, I feel like it was a lot of appropriism that it wasn't a. Um, I don't think that it was so much like a we like this because we understand it and we feel like we connect with it somehow. It was more of like, oh, this is a popular, you know, exotic, interesting thing. And I'm going to buy all this stuff and showcase it to, you know, show off how cultured and how wealthy and how, you know, important or connected I am or whatever. Um, not saying that there weren't artists that were attracted to it um, because of, like, they felt some sort of kinship. I think that um, Van Gogh was was influenced, at least in part, by, um, by this. And I think um, Monet was as well, I believe. Um, but it it seems like it was much more like an, of a, an appropriation, and I I've actually thought about this with um, my what I feel is a connection to at least the aesthetics of Japanese art um, and like more or less Zen Buddhist thinking um, and haiku as a sort of intersection between the two. Um, and I, I've struggled with wondering if with my practice and in, in, um, my appreciation of it, like it, where did where is that that boundary between like appreciation and influence and appropriation? Um, and I I hope that I'm I'm not appropriating um, like a culture that's that's not mine and i i know that there's some there's some discussion about if like a, if a if another culture is is kind of like offering stuff up like is you know is, is putting it out there to be consumed then you know it's like you can consume it you you know just like don't i i don't i don't know i don't know if this is if i don't have enough information on on these issues and these ideas um to voice a, an opinion one way or another. Um, the next time that I talk about it, I, I will have thought about it more and looked into it and read more things about it, I, I promise you. But at least right now, it's like I'm... I, I don't think that I that I am, and I hope that I'm on the side of just appreciation um, and maybe recognition of some sort of kinship and not like, I, you know, I'm, I'm taking this away from another culture and, and repackaging it as, as a like a ostensibly white cis thing. But that being said, um, the early, at least the early attempts of English language haiku don't like they're, they missed the mark. There's, there's a lack of understanding. And maybe that's, that's part of the, the issue, um, with appropriation and things that are not appropriate is the, is a fundamental lack of understanding of what 
you know, at least for haiku, like what haiku is or what it does. Um, and I will read, there are a couple, there's a couple in here that, that feel like they get it. Like, uh, Keats has two or three in here that he's, he feels like he's, um, like he, he kind of understands it. Um, and of the romantic poets, Keats is, is one of my favorites. So I, I don't know what that says about me or his attempts. Um, so one of Keats goes daffodils with the green world they live in. Um, and this is the first Wordsworth in it, in, in this section. The sun shines warm and the babe leaps up on her mother's arm. Well, I don't know. There are some that are, that aren't, um, This is one by Hopkins. Oh, jeez, I don't know. As a dare gale skylark scanted in a dull cage, man's mounting spirit in his bone house. Which I, I guess he's equating the desire of a of a skylark in the cage to be in the sky as the same sensation of a man's spirit wanting to be out of his, I, I don't know. It's just, it's too much. Like he's, he's trying to, it's so one of the, one of the things with haiku, at least with development of haiku, from my understanding is that they are like non, like they're non analogous. Um, they don't employ like analogous language such as similes or metaphor. Usually they don't. Um, they are kind of just what they are. Like if you're talking about a, a flower in a hedge, you're, it's just the, like you're sitting with the moment of, of seeing a flower in a hedge. Um, and I feel like at least for that, the last poem that I read, um, trying to pack too much into the space and trying to like equate instead of just in just sitting with the image of, um, like a bird in a cage you know, and like not applying, um, like overlaying some sort of implied emotion or some, you know, instead of just like just presenting a bird in a cage and letting us deal with that image. Um, that poet was explaining it and trying to pack more information into it or pack more emotion or more, I don't know, something, some, some, some deeper form of equation. Um, and I, I guess maybe that's it. It was, too, it was too much of a of a showing that you know this is what you're supposed to feel. You're supposed to connect with this bird in a cage and this and the longing that you perceive there as your own spirit's longing. But he shows that to us instead of just giving us the bird in the cage and trusting that we will arrive at the point of like, oh, I see, that's me. Um, so one of the hallmarks of later haiku development is much more of the implying or the like you you give you give the person or you give the reader just enough information for them to fill in the blanks, but you don't you you don't do the work for them. You make them do the work. Um, I I don't know who the who where I, I found this quote originally, but uh, it's something along the lines, and I've I've seen it kind of reproduced and re. Uh, Resaid by other people, the idea that a haiku, like a, a written haiku, is a is half of a poem, 
like a, a poet writes a haiku and that's half of half of the actual piece of poetry that it is a haiku it's only com it's completed only upon somebody reading it um that the act of reading it and the act of the reader filling in their own experiences into the kind of latticework that the haiku gives is what completes the poem or what it completes the experience and if you view haiku as a um like the the transfer of some emotional experience without transferring the emotional experience then that's really like the work isn't done until um it's like you you shoot an arrow into the air and that's half of the act of you know like you haven't hit the target yet you have to hit, you have to there has to be a target to receive the arrow for you to say i hit this target um otherwise it's like you just you're pulling back and shooting and that's kind of what I feel, um, at least my understanding, that's kind of the the way that haiku are viewed, at least nowadays, that um, the the poem is, is a half of a thing in, when it's unread. Anyway, um, all of that to say that there was some leaking out of uh, Japanese art in the like late 1800s which actually based upon um so there's a featured essay in the autumn 2005 issue of modern haiku written by charles trumbull um who i've actually met on a couple of occasions he, he was at a couple of the haiku north america conferences that i was at um but his opening line to this essay is <clears throat> The history of American haiku, of the American haiku movement, can be said to have begun when Commodore Matthew Perry negotiated a treaty between the United States and the Japanese governments in 1854, uh, opening the way for trade and communication between the West and Japan. Um, Japanese art, seen as exotic, quickly became popular in Europe, especially France, where it exerted a, a strong influence on the Impressionist painters. Um, at the same time, information on the poetry of Japan began to circulate. So that's really kind of the first taste that... Because up until this point, Japan had been largely closed off. Um, so this is like the first taste that people outside of Japan are getting of... Oh, this is Japanese art. And kind of the first taste that the Japanese people are getting of Western art. Um, uh, let's see... Yeah, so, um, I guess I'll just finish reading the, the, the paragraph. Uh, there were close connections among French artists, musicians, and poets in the later part of the 19th century and the early years of the 20th, and Japanese art, as well as poetry, influenced uh, the group known as the Symbolist Poets in France. In Great Britain and America, the Images Poets, among them Amy Wall, Ezra Pound, T. Uh, Holm, Hume, and John Gould Fletcher, who I'll get to in a bit, drew inspiration from this French group. Uh, one of several influences of both French and American poets was the Japanese haiku. So there were tastes of it. There were little snippets of, of information being kind of eked out early. Um, and then, you know, World War II happened. Um, Japan was, uh, you know allied with the Nazis and the Italians and the, the Axis powers um, and lost and then were was occupied by the Allied forces. Um, so 
the first um, one of the I don't know there may have been some other works before this but kind of like the first big work um, that that began the haiku writing English English language haiku um, was in 1949 with the publication in Japan of the first volume of haiku uh, the form four volume work by Reginald Horace Blythe who could not have a more English name if he tried um, so this is back at the New World Encyclopedia, um, and actually the Everyman's um, Pocket Library haiku book. Um, most of the, most of if not all of the translations in here are Blythe's. So you really kind of get a sense of like the the first person who did a lot of scholarly translation, um, who seems to really kind of get it. Um, but anyway, Blythe was an Englishman who first lived in Japanese annexed Korea, then in Japan. Um, there were some other other things that I've I've read about him. Uh, let's see if I can find out. Um, yeah, so he he was a scholar. Um, he lived in Japan and uh, published works on Zen, haiku, Senryu, other forms of Japanese and Asian literature. Um, so his um, his works, uh, Zen in English Literature and Oriental Classics, which was published in 1942, and his four-volume haiku series, uh, published from 1949 to 1952. Which, if you should you should Google these, if if no one has done this, uh, you can find them on Amazon. They are incredibly expensive, but I believe that he breaks up his um, his volumes in like a, a seasonal so it's like spring summer fall winter or autumn winter although i don't know which one he started with um but anyway so his haiku series deals mostly with pre-modern hoku although he includes shiki um and then he published a two-volume history of haiku in 1964 which made him a major interpreter of haiku to the west so he he was kind of the first first one of the first main guys um but it's interesting that he includes shiki um and it's now kind of largely agreed upon that there are four kind of main forces in the development of of haiku or development of what we know of as haiku starts with basho and I, I kind of went through this in the last episode um but it starts with basho continues to busan then to Isa, then Shiki. So those are the four kind of major figures or major movements in haiku. And I think it's very interesting that Blythe includes Shiki in his um, in his his dealings with haiku. And this is maybe 20-ish so years after Shiki like made the distinction that haiku is a thing. Um, But, yeah, so that's, you know, I, I think that maybe not, if not for him, I don't know if Shiki's influence would have been as, as, as at least in, well, I'm sure that it was, it, it, there's no doubt that it would be as, as, his influence would be as significant in Japan. Um, I don't know what, have, what that would have entailed in English writing 
of haiku, but, um, so anyway, um, then another book, and this is where, uh, Yasuda comes in, I believe, yes, um, so in 1957, uh, the Charles E. Tuttle Company, which interestingly enough has a has the publishing office in Vermont. Um, I've tried many times. Well, I've looked on their site to see if they have openings for editors because I would want. I would absolutely love to work for them. I some of the books that um, I've picked up over the years, not knowing that they were Tuttle, turned out to be Tuttle publications. Anyway. Um, uh, yeah, so the Tuttle Company, and this is again on the New World Encyclopedia page, uh, with offices in both Japan and the U.S., published the Japanese haiku, Its Essential Nature, History and Possibilities in English, with selected examples, very long title and subtitle, written by the Japanese-American scholar and translator Kenneth Yasuda. Um, the book consists mainly of materials from Yasuda's doctoral dissertation at Tokyo University in, from 1955, and includes both translations from Japanese and original poems of his own in English, which previously appeared in his book, A Pepper Pod, Classic Japanese Poems, together with Original Haiku, which was uh, published by Knopf in 1947. Um, in Japanese Haiku, uh, Yasuda presented some Japanese critical theory about haiku, especially featuring comments by early 20th century poets and critics. His translations, and this is kind of where the whole 575 syllable count thing you really start kind of seeing. Uh, his translations conform to a 575 syllable count in English, and the first and third lines in rhymed. Uh, so that's that in and of itself is a really interesting development because, um, as I talked about, I think in the last episode, um, and if not, I will get, I'm, I'm going to do a, I, I want to do a, an episode on kind of just haiku as. Um, like what are the what are the hallmarks, quote unquote, of of contemporary haiku? Um, just because I've encountered a lot of things that are presented as haiku and they're really not. Um, that doesn't mean that they're bad poems. They're just not like not haiku. They could probably be senryu or there's another. Uh, I think Lee Gerga, um, who I'll get to in a little bit. I mean, maybe not a little bit, but I'll I'll get to. I'll at least mention him. Um, made a distinction that he calls him something else. Uh, I don't remember what it is, but it's in his uh, Haiku Poets Guide book that he wrote. Um, you know, kind of like short and like qu quippy, witty, and aphorism type things. Um, but anyway, so uh, I, I feel like a lot of the, um, oh, Haiku is five, seven, five syllables. Um, comes from some of these early translations where they adhere to a syllable count that isn't really represented in English. Um, I think, I, I, as I mentioned before, I think that I talked about this in the last episode that um, in Japan, um, haiku or con, or consist of 17 on, which is their own phonetic um, groupings of, of uh, characters that are a hell of a lot shorter than American syllables. And there's the distinction between like on and um, more. Um, and like for, I think for on, it's a one-to-one -one representation of on to a more. Whereas in English, 
syllables can have up to like four more. So nowadays, um, and I'm sure that I will probably be repeating myself in the contemporary haiku episode, that uh, nowadays a lot of haiku poets don't uh, don't write 17, don't write haiku in 17 English syllables. It's usually, you know, like at most maybe like 12 to 13, um, sometimes as little as seven, sometimes, you know, like a, a single word. Um, there are a couple of examples of that, um, which I may or may not bring up. Um, if you know, there's a Core Vanderhoel's um, Tundra, where it's blank page and then the word Tundra right in the middle of it, um, which is considered a haiku. Um, so, you know, one word. Um, but, um, the other interesting thing is that, uh, Yasuda had his rhyme, which I've, I've encountered in like, re I've come across a couple of books that have really, really early translations of rhymed, uh, haiku. And I want to say that in looking up stuff, there was another guy that did rhymed haiku, but I don't... Uh, I don't remember what his name was, uh, but anyway, um, that is largely, that has been largely put by the wayside. Oh, uh, no, that Wright did his just in syllable count. Um, in intro, like in Japanese haiku don't rhyme or rhyming is not used as one of the, like the standard aspects of the form of haiku. Um, so it's, it's interesting that you that Yasuda decided to rhyme his. Um, and the other uh, kind of important introduction of Yasuda was uh, his theory of the concept of a haiku moment, uh, which he said is based in personal experience, so sashay, and provides the motive for writing a haiku. Um, so if, if any if any listeners have at least in the United States um, are aware of the current kind of contemporary haiku, or haiku culture in groups, the haiku moment is very much pushed as the sort of like the genesis of of writing a haiku and kind of what you're trying to capture the the quote unquote aha moment, um, which I don't I don't think like Blythe really. I don't know if he mentioned that or not, but Yasuda was like he that was one of his his main ideas. And so in the, the little paragraph I was reading ends with um well the rest of his theoretical writings writing on haiku is not widely discussed. Um some people that I mentioned um I believe that some in some of the conferences that I've been to Yasuda has been mentioned and kind of dismissed um more or less but his notion of the haiku moment has resonated with writers of in uh, uh, his notion of haiku of the haiku moment has resonated with haiku writers in North America. So that's that's kind of what most people latched onto. Um, so with Blythe and Yasuda, um, you get like pretty well thought out scholarly interpretations of haiku and pretty scholarly um, translations of haiku, which had a major influence on 
two kind of movements of poetry. Um, it's like early 20s-ish with the Imagists, and then later, um, I believe in like the 40s and 50s with, um, with the Beats. Um, so the Imagists, um, Ezra Pound, um, Amy Lowell, uh, oh shit, there's, some, there's somebody else too. Um, D.H. Lawrence, I guess, but I don't know if you would consider him a, an Imagist or not. Um, like, we're very much influenced by, um, by haiku, and I will read, uh, yes, I did mean Imagist. Um, so this is from the, and I'll, I'll put this up in the description too, um, cause I'm, I'm probably only going to read a little bit of it, um, of this statement of intent. Um, so the imagists were considered to be, um, the first organized modernist literary movement in the English language. Um, and image, imagism is sometimes viewed, and this is from the Wikipedia article, as a, a succession of creative movements rather than any continuous or sustained period of development. Um, and Rene Telpin uh, remarked that it, it is more accurate to consider images, in, yeah, imagism not as a doctrine or even as a poetic school, but as the association of a few poets who were for a certain time in agreement with a small number of important principles. So it's it's a movement, but it's not like, you know, like the, I don't know, um, not super, I don't, I don't know, take that, take that as, as you will. Um, but the, uh, in the March 1913 issue of Poetry contained a few don'ts by, uh, by an imagist, uh, and the essay entitled Images and both written by Ezra Pound with the latter being attributed to another poet. Um, the later contained, or the latter contained this succinct statement of the group's position. So this is kind of what imagists believed. Direct treatment of a thing, whether subject, subjective or objective, to use absolutely no words that do not contribute to the presentation of that, of said thing. Um, and in regard to, as regarding rhythm, uh, to compose in a sequence of musical phrase, not in the sequence of a metronome. Um, and so Pound's uh, note opened with the definition of, of an image as that which presents an intellectual and emotional complex for an instant of time. Um, so they are, they're very concerned with like the, 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 I think, um, the, an image or like a, a thing as a thing. And William Carlos Williams, I think can be kind of grouped into this, that it's not so much of a, like a, like you're just, you're dealing with objects and you're dealing with things kind of like as they are, um, which haiku presented as kind of short, um, naturalistic image-based poems. I can I can definitely understand the um, the connection to you know a, a style of poetry that is like super brief and deals with just sort of 
things, like not your perception of them, not your emotional aspect or whatever towards them. It's just like you present like a flower in a hedge or a bird in a cage. Um, and that's it. Like you're in and you're out. Um, you know, those, those, uh, you know, haiku, like that haiku moment or whatever are things that, uh, presents, uh, in an instant of time, you know, it's like there's these, you get a snapshot of, of a singular moment. Um, and the first successful, at least lauded as such, um, haiku written in the English language is attributed to Pound's uh, Station of the Metro, or a sta in a station of the Metro, um, which I'm sure a lot of my listeners um, out there have actually encountered, but it reads as follows. The apparition of these faces in the crowd petals on a wet black bow. Bow. Whatever. Um, so there's, you know, like that's, he's, he's doing the work. He's, he's, he's drawing two disparate images, um, kind of implying a, a relationship between the two, but he doesn't, and he doesn't, uh, contextualize it. He doesn't, like he implies there's an emotional connection and, um, you know, that there's something going on between them, but he just gives you these two images and then he's out. Um, so take it for what you will. Um, so the images kind of like rose and they kind of fell away and then the beats came about. Um, and So, and this leads to the next kind of development. Um, and this is back at the New World Encyclopedia, um, which you can tell I kind of cribbed a, a lot of this episode from. Um, there's a paragraph that reads, uh, the impulse to write haiku in English in North America was probably given more to a push, more of a push by two books that appeared in 1958 than by, Bly than by Blythe, Blythe's books directly. So the beats were heavily, heavily influenced by Blythe's work. So Kerouac, uh, Gary Snyder, um, oh, uh, Ginsburg. Uh, there was another person that I wanted to mention. Uh, there was another poet that I wanted to mention, but I don't. I don't know if I can if I can find her. Um, I mean, like the big kind of beat poets are Ginsburg, Snyder, and Kerouac with some, you know, with some other people. Anyway, um, so Kerouac publishes The Dharma Bums, which appeared in 1958. Um, one of its main characters, Jaffe Ryder, is based on Gary Snyder, um, who was writing haiku. And in and this is kind of the, the, the last of the, I guess, like classical English or American English language um, introductions to haiku. This book was published also in 1958, happened to be called An Introduction to Haiku, an anthology of poems and poets from Basho to Shiki, so another guy who, who includes Shiki, uh, by Harold G. Henderson, uh, and that was published by Doubleday Anchor Books. Um, and this was, the introduction to Haiku was a, and I, did, I didn't realize this, but it was a careful revision and a republishing of Henderson's earlier book, The Bamboo, Bamboo Broom, from 1934, 
um, which didn't really get any notice before World War II. Um, and so after the war, Henderson and Blythe both worked for the American occupation in Japan uh, and for the imperial household, oh, for the American occupation in Japan, in Japan and imperial household, respectively. And their mutual appreciation of haiku helped form a bond between the two, and they collaborated and, you know, um, I want to say that Henderson uh, was open to communication, so he encouraged people to write him. Um, but Henderson also apparently translated every hoku and haiku into a rhymed tercet, so an ABA, um, whereas Japanese originals never use are never used rhyme. Um, but and this is interesting, unlike Yasuda. Uh, Henderson recognized that 17 syllables in English are generally longer than the 17 more or phonetic units of traditional Japanese haiku. Uh, since the normal modes of English poetry depended upon accentual meter rather than syllables, Henderson chose to emphasize the order of events and images in the originals rather than counting syllables. Um, so his is one of the first shifts from um, like a not strictly adhered to syllable count, kind of more of a, a sense that there's other things happening and, and going on in a haiku that uh, carry more weight to the form than syllable count. Um, and that's actually, um, I believe that Japanese, the order of, of words and languages is, is different than in English. So, and I've, I've read some uh, introductions to some translations that take the the you know the i th i think that there are more interpretations of translations but at least the two that i've kind of the two main ones that i've encountered um are do you translate a work in another language as literally as possible or do you take some sort of uh i don't know artistic liberties to present it in a way that like to present if you're translating something from japanese to english do you translate it literally word for word for word or do you more sort of interpret it um and i feel like in henderson's case it was more of a this is an interpretation like i'm i'm making i'm like i understand japanese enough and the kind of the movements of the haiku enough to presented in such a way that it does the same type of work and it hits the same sort of way that it would if you were reading this in the original Japanese. Um, but, yeah, so um, another kind of interesting issue with Blythe is that he didn't really foresee the writing of haiku in languages other than Japanese, so he didn't... Uh, like form a school or anything um but he blythe uh really really emphasized the connection between zen like the zen influence and spirituality to haiku um which was an interesting sort of uh walking back of what shiki tried to do or what he what he did of separating haiku from the zen influence um and Gary Snyder ran with that. Uh, let's see. There's another thing that I found about him. Where did it go? Um, like he... Uh, I believe that he... Oh, where is it? Like he won an, like an international haiku um, award. I think it was the Meso Okashiki like, haiku award. But he... Um, 
So Snyder in particular, this is another website that I'll, I'll put up. Uh, Snyder in particular found his life calling through haiku, traveling to Japan where he lived for about six years in a Buddhist monastery. In Buddhist monasteries. So he, like, Snyder, whole hog, like, Buddhism, haiku. Um, yeah, so, uh, and this is from the same, the same, um, website that I just read from, that suddenly America was hooked on haiku. Students and professors grabbed whatever they could find and took advantage of any Japanese context to not only procure the classics, but also the latest haiku. Snyder, a serious student of Basho and Isa, steered haiku to the mystical, spiritual, pinpoint, zen-like observation that Shiki had removed. So, Blythe and Snyder kind of double-teamed Shiki to, to bring haiku back to zen. Um... Yeah, and then so a uh, another poet, um, Richard Wright, who was a um, African American um, writer, um, wrote his haiku while maintaining the five seven five syllable pattern as sort of a respect or a bow to the Japanese on. Um, and in his final years, Wright wrote more than four thousand haiku, uh, eight hundred seventeen of which appear in his haiku. Uh, this Other World, which is um, a collection. He added surrealism, political themes, and interconnectedness of humans in the natural world. Um, and it was a big hit during the Cultural Revolution of the, na uh, the late 1960s and the environmental movement uh, that followed. Um, so I actually have a collection of, of his um, poetry, and I believe that it was... I don't know if it was assembled by his one of his daughters or at least that there's a, a preface from it but he, i think he was writing these while he was living in um france and like they're they're really cool um i'll put a description or a link to hit to that book into him as a as a poet in the description as well um so you have so you have all of these sort of like um you have all, kind of all of these movements um and then you get to sort of like the American style of haiku, um, which, so this is back at the New World Encyclopedia page. Um, the individualistic haiku-like verses um, by the innovative Buddhist poet and artist Paul Reps um, appeared in print as early as 1939. Um, so he, like he was, he was working on it. Um, and then other Westerners, inspired by Blythe's translation, attempted original haiku in English, though again generally failing to understand the principles behind the verse. Um, uh, these, the resulting verses, including those from the beat period, were often little more than the, uh, yeah, they had little more than the brevity of a haiku form combined with current ideas of poetic uh, content or uniformed attempts at Zen poetry. Nevertheless, these experimental verses expanded the popularity of haiku in English. Uh, while never making significant, a significant impact on the literary world, haiku in America has proven a very popular uh, system of introducing students to poetry in, in elementary schools and, you know, as a hobby and blah, 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 blah. Um, and I didn't, I didn't realize this until I, I discovered this in a couple of the, the articles or the, the pages that I was reading that... Um, that the Haiku Society of America was founded in 1964 to promote haiku. I knew that. Um, and they have a, a literary magazine called Fraud Pond that I encourage you to, to check out. But uh, poets 
Gerald uh, Weisner, Gordon Henry Jr., and Kimberly Blaser, meanwhile, have connected haiku form to the traditional uh, to the tradition of North American uh, Anishina uh, Abe tribe. Um, uh, stressing the essential interconnectedness of the human and the natural world, which is something that I had absolutely no idea about, which is incredible to me um, that uh, that within within haiku being written in English and as, as a sort of like um, like the forming of an American tradition, there were Native American um, poets that kind of drew that were drawn to it based upon the, the connection between um, like the human and the, the natural world which is what the original like hoku and the haikai no renga it's like that's kind of what they were getting at that there's you know with the zen influence or the buddhist uh, buddhism influence that it's like it's all connected it's like nothing is separate it's all part of the sort of same unit same continuum um and that the, that there is stuff that is that happens in nature that can that is relevatory to like our us I think. Um, let's see. There is another little bit about I believe uh, the the Native American poets. It may have been in the Trumbull thing. Uh, let's see. So, uh, I would I I'm going to put the um, Charles Trumbull's essay up in the description, and I greatly encourage anybody to read it. It's kind of long, but it is chock full of just amazing. Like he really digs deep um, with um, just a, a ton of information. Um, oh yes, it is here. So. Um, so this is from his section, the section of his essay called Other Haiku Eddies and Currents. Another way of defining the mainstream, quote unquote, American haiku movement is to look at the other currents that flowed from, the, from early haiku experts, especially Blythe. These include first the beat generation, which I, we, I talked about, um, which, which was attracted to oriental philosophers and literary genres. Kenneth Rexroth translated Japanese haiku in the 1950s, and I, I think I have a couple of his translations somewhere. Um, uh, here it is, Diane de Prima. Um, so Gary Snyder, Jack Kerouac, Diane de Prima, and Allen Ginsberg were writing verses in this period and showing an insight into the nature of haiku. The beats were important to the haiku movement, mostly for having been there, done that, um, but little of lasting had little of lasting influence of haiku in America, um, except from the luster of their names. Uh, likewise, a few African American poets explored haiku. Tapping the same roots as the mainstream practitioners in the beats, but developing unique content and aesthetics along the way. Um, these include Etheridge Knight, who wrote uh, of his eight years in prison with his raw lyrics and black aesthetic in the usual haiku form and in haiku sequences, which I did not know. Uh, Robert Hayden, Julius Lester, Richard Wright, uh, Randolph Nelson, Randolph Nelson uh, Levy, and Sonia Sanchez were prominent names in the stream of haiku writing. To a greater or lesser extent, all of these poets harnessed the brevity of the haiku form to encapsulate and add impact to social messages. So they were, they they put a lot of um, like social and political um, 
topics or uh, like focuses in, in their writing. Um, poets writing in this current, oh, in this current have not much influenced haiku or the mainstream haiku. Um, nor has the haiku genre has had much influence on black American writing. Um, which is something that I'm, I'm interested in nowadays to, to like the vast majority of the people that I've in, I've met at the Haiku North America conferences have been um, older white people and um, some some Asian American um, writers, but I've I've seen very few African American poets, um, which is interesting to me that this um, just you know like why as a as a form of poetry has it um, has there been a, a lack of connection? Um, I don't know. I've this is something that I like in reading in reading this is something I've begun begun to think about. Um, and I don't know. I might. I'll, I feel like something's something's working in there. But um, so there's also a few Native American poets have explored haiku as well. Uh, writer and scholar uh, Gerald Visner. V-I-Z-E-N-O-R, uh, has found a relationship between the Chippewa, Dream Song, and Japanese haiku uh, that he was exposed to when he was a soldier in the Far East. Uh, he has plumbed these convictions, these connections in several books, books of lyrical haiku beginning in 1964. Um, the verses of poets such as Raven Hale, who's Cherokee, um, Nora Marks Dauenhauer, um, and Mary Tallmatten, Tall Mountain, uh, to show the poets on intimate terms with nature and employ the terseness and the structure of traditional haiku to bring home the spiritual con uh, condition of their people. Um, William O'Donnell, uh, Owen Donson. Oh wait, uh, fuck! I hate I hate mispronouncing people's last names. Owen Dasan. There it is. William Owen Dasan. Um, who's also published a number of, number of haiku collections. Um, and then he goes on to talk about long-form poets have experimented with haiku. Um, but I'm, I, I'm not going to go into that. Um, but this is something that, that's very interesting that I, I did not think about until I read this little part of, of his essay. Um, Finally, and this is still from the, the Trumbull essay, finally, mention needs to be made of haiku writers within Japanese-American community, within the Japanese-American community, although, um, with a few exceptions, see the discussion of Yuki uh, Teike, the haiku society below, um, there's been almost no con contact between English language and haiku language, uh, sorry, there's been almost no contact between English language and Japanese language haiku groups in the in the United States, and only limited involvement of Japanese Americans in English language haiku movement. Uh, because haiku groups in Japan are normally formed around a sensei or, or haiku master, it is tempting to conclude that within the Japanese American community, it is not considered possible to sustain a respectable group absent a sen uh, sensei. Still, haiku and senryu groups have formed in America, often under the aegis of Buddhist temples and other Japanese cultural centers. Haiku, group, haiku groups 
that were formed in the 1930s in California continued after the or uh, continued under the even more trying circumstances of the internment camps set up by the U.S. government to isolate Japanese Americans during World War II. Um, a fine collection of haiku and of some of these groups written uh, in the Kaiko or the Crimson or written or oh sorry that was a continuous um, a fine collection of the haiku of some of these groups written in the Kaiko or Crimson Sea style of avant-garde Japanese um, poet Nakasuka Ibikero uh, was gathered by Violet uh, Kazue de Cristoforo and published in 1997 in May Sky. Um, so that's something that's also interesting, which I really, I feel ashamed and guilty that I did not think about was at least as up to 19 or 2005 that there was seemingly little connect, little contact between haiku writers um, writing in English in America and haiku writers writing in Japanese in America. Um, and again, this is, I have not done research into this aspect yet. It will probably come into play when I do my contemporary uh, haiku episode, but that's very intriguing to me, um, and I don't, I don't know, I don't know the reason why. Um, I don't know if there is necessarily a single reason why as to these two groups haven't contacted each other. But it seems like they sh they should. Like what? Like why not? Um, but yeah, so that was just that was some interesting, um, just tidbit of of information that I, I had no idea about. Um, so that gets us close to like the sixties and the seventies. Um, and, um, so around the sixties, there were some, um, so the haiku society of America started, uh, there are a lot of, uh, haiku centric literary magazines that popped up. Um, American haiku, uh, I don't know when they started. Oh, it's 63. There we go. Uh, the journal American Haiku was founded in uh, Platteville, Wisconsin, which is interesting that the haiku movement in, um, in the United States kind of was like West Coast and Midwest. Um, and it was edited by European Americans named uh, James Bull and Donald Eulert. Eulert. E-U-L-E-R-T. Um, so among the contributors to the first issue were poets uh, James W. Hackett, uh, O. Mabson Southard, and Nick Virgilio. And Virgilio is um, considered one of the, like, the early American, early in the sense of, of, like, haiku being written in English in America as a movement of kind of one of the, like, the big, the top people. Um and in the second issue, and this is back to the Haiku in English Wikipedia page, um, the, in the second issue of American Haiku, Virgilio published his Lily and his ba uh, Bass Haiku, uh, which became models of the brevity, um, which became models of brevity, breaking down the traditional 575 sil sil uh, syllabic form and pointing toward the leaner conception of Haiku that would take hold in subsequent decades. And the two poems that were mentioned are Lily, out of the water, out of itself. 
and bass picking bugs off the moon. So both of these poems start with the first line is a single word. You have lily and bass. Um, in the lily poem, the second line is three words long and out of uh, what? So it's in five syllables. And then the third line is is three lines long, four syllables. Um, the the bass poem is bass is the first line, picking bugs, three syllables, uh, second line, and off the moon, three syllables, third line. Um, so yeah, so those that's kind of this is now we are in um, like American English haiku territory. Um, and in 68, American haiku ended, uh, but it was succeeded by modern haiku, which I believe is still, um, it's, which remains an important English language haiku journal. Um, Frog Pond is, is the American um, Haiku Society of America um, journal. Um, and it was, uh, oh, and there are two other books that I would recommend people pick up um, if they're if they're interested in beginning to write haiku in English. Uh, the first one is William J. Higginson's Haiku, The Haiku Handbook, which has gone through a couple of editions. Um, I think that the most recent one is like the third or the fourth, maybe. Um, and Lee Gerga, coming back, uh, Haiku, A Poet's Guide, which was published by Modern Haiku Press in 2003. Um, they're both like treasure troves and wealths of information. Um, both are sort of, um, not so much like a, this is how you write a haiku, but kind of breaking down haiku as, um, like the kind of the main components and, you know, like what different ways that you can kind of assemble the lines for it and, you know, a bunch of, um, so it's like real, real critical, real kind of like analytical haiku theory, um, which is great, um, if you're, you know, if you want to, if you want to get in it and really kind of take the, take a more intellectual approach to the, to the writing of haiku. Um, if not, and you just want to read a bunch of haiku, um, I would recommend, um, so for, uh, Cor van der Heuvel, um, has edited in the standard, uh, haiku anthology, which has also gone through a bunch of editions. Um, uh, so, and then kind of a little bit like with the, with the, the beginning, the first edition of, uh, Haiku Anthology, which was published in 1974, again, the Wikipedia Haiku in English page, uh, since its most recent edition, another generation of American poet, haiku poets have come into prominence. Among the most widely published in honor of these are John Barlow, uh, Cherry Hunter Day, Carolyn Hall. Paul M., John Martone, Chadley Robinson, Billy Wilson, Peter Yovu. Um, the newer poets exemplify divergent tendencies from the self-effacing, nature-oriented haiku of uh, Alan Burns to Zen themes perpetuating the concepts of Blythe and Hackett, Stanford and Forrester, who I've met, um, and poignant haiku Sinryu hybrids in the manner of uh, Alexis Rotella and Swede, um, Roberta Barry, who I've also met. 
um, in the use of subjective, surreal, and mythic elements. Faye Ayoagi, who I have met and have a book of, um, she's, she's a tremendous, absolutely wonderful poet. Um, emergent social and political consciousness from John J. Dunphy, and genre-bending structural and linguistic uh, experimentation, as well as found haiku from Scott Metz. Um, I'm not going to list all of these people in the description, but um, I hope that you you take the, whoever my listeners are take the time to to read these articles and you know like go out and find these people for yourself. Um, so since this potentially, there are some other kind of big name poets um, like Michael Dylan Welsh, like Lee Garga, uh, Alexis Rotella. Um, Again, who I've I had the pleasure I had the pleasure of meeting Alexis Rotella. I, t- I took a um, a workshop with her last year, last oh well, almost exactly a year ago. Um, let me see. There's some other oh, um, I think that that gets us up to yeah. So at least in America, that kind of gets us up to the present date. So you had. Um, Blythe and Yasuda and Henderson publishing their kind of their seminal works, um, which influenced the Imagists who have kind of risen and gone, and then the Beats who would seem to have a more lasting in- impact. Um, but also led to a um, large just interest in haiku, with people kind of popping up all over the place wanting to write it. Um, in the kind of like main journals that are out there too, that are, um, that are still running and still primarily haiku. Um, there was a, there's a haiku poet who I've, I've met, like I've, I've talked to many times and I've, I've met, she was at AWP, um, promoting one of her books. Um, Deborah Kologi, uh, actually I want to make sure that I got her last name right as well. Cause I'm now super, uh, yeah, Deborah P. Kologi, um, who is also a wonderful poet. Um, in the last Haiku North America conference, did a panel on which bigger um, mainstream literary journals are taking, like, will accept Haiku. Um, and I think I have some pictures on my phone of ones that she said were um uh, let me see if i can find them because she like she emailed a bunch of editors and um just to see what they would say about taking haiku and she's she's published um she's published her own haiku in um in some journals i think rattle did um like so i think rattle did like a haiku issue like themed issue but also um there's a growing, and this is really interesting, there's a growing group of, um, I do not have those photos. Oh, wait, no, yes, I do. Um, well, whatever. Um, not, not the photos that I thought that they were, but there is a growing group of of <laughs> haiku poets writing what they call sci-fi-ku, which is a relatively recent development, I think. Um, so, you know, like post-apocalyptic uh, or just general, like, hard or soft sci-fi inspired haiku, which is 
incredible that like kind of with the article meant with the one of the last articles that i read mentioned about the um the wikipedia one about the genre bending structural linguistic experimentation um you know like writing haiku in a particular genre and i think that there have been you know like there are um there are a lot of uh romantic haiku out there um a lot of the um not exclusively, but a lot of the like women haiku writers, and I want to say that Jane Hirschfield uh, helped translate a book of women of uh, Japanese. I think it was primarily Japanese women writers who were writing haiku, um, who have in large part have been kind of overlooked by the, um, which I believe that I also fuck. I also overlook them for my haiku development in the Japan episode um, that wrote, you know. Like are are touted as tremendous haiku poets. There's a um, there's a Tonka poet who is a who's a woman whose name escapes me. That I have, I think I have a collection or two of her books, and they're they're just they're phenomenal. I'll, if I don't I don't think I'll be able to remember it now, but I will um again I'll I'll put a description in in the um put a link in the description, or may just do or I will probably just do a um women in haiku poetry centric episode just to to give a you know full hour <laughs> to this um so the i'll give a little bit of a taste of because um, there's there's another poet that i i feel like i need to mention um that this is this is getting more into like the contemporary haiku stuff, and I think that I'm gonna I'm gonna stop the episode now because I've talked for a hell of a lot longer than I intended to, and I feel like I covered the stuff that I needed to cover. Um, but nowadays, like w now that haiku is kind of an established form, there's been a lot of experimentation of um, how to write it. Um, in the there's some kind of generally accepted rules that are used now. Um, which again, I will I will get to. Well, I I feel like it's probably worth mentioning now. Um, so this common more commonplace practices now are um, use three or fewer uh, lines, sometimes longer, and I'll I'll get to that in a second. Um, lines of no more than no more than seventeen syllables. Um, usually, uh, significantly not as many as seven, seventeen syllables. Um, the use of a metrical feat rather than syllables. So a haiku then becomes three lines of two, three, two metrical feet with a pause after the second or the fifth. Um, so either separating the first line from the second two or the last line from the first two to give sort of like the, the, the presentation of two images. But since we don't have... Um, since we don't have the uh, like koreji, like the cutting words, we have to use things. Um, well, and this, the other thing is that the use of a scissora, either an audible pause to implicitly contrast or compare two events or situations, which is usually uh, in writing denoted with a comma or a colon or um, a hyphen or I mean a dash uh, or some other you know like nonverbal communication whatever to show that there's some sort of that these there are two things that are happening with here sometimes like i've seen i've seen a ton of haiku that are written without that but 
in reading it, you you will give sort of the pause of um, like the haiku that I recited um, in the beginning of the episode. I mean, I didn't necessarily pause it because it's one complete thought, but whatever. Um, so the reason that I say, uh, well, so uh, Marlene Mountain is the is the woman that I need to um, that I need to to talk about because she was the first person in English language haiku to write a haiku regularly in a single horizontal line, which feel. Um, much close. So I, I will read the this little section of the English of the Haikun English Wikipedia article. Um, so although the vast majority of haiku published in English are in three long three lines long, variants also occur. The first one being a one line or a monoku. Um, the most common variation from the three line standard is the one line, sometimes called the monoku. And emerged from being uh, more than in a case. Oh, it, whatever. Um, the one-line form, based on the analogy with the one-line vertical column in in which Japanese ho- haiku are often printed. So usually Japanese pr- haiku are printed in one long single column. Um, was lent legitimacy principally by three people. Uh, Marlene Mountain, who I mentioned, was the first. Uh, to do it regularly in English language haiku. Um, and then Hiroaki Sato translated Japanese haiku into one line in English. And Matsu, uh, Matsuo Allard wrote an essay in its favor and published several magazines and chapbooks devoted to the form in addition to practicing it um, himself. Uh so the single line haiku usually contains fewer than 17 syllables. A caesura uh, or pause may be, may be appropriate, dictated in sense of speech or rhythm, um, following the traditional Japanese tradition of a break marked by a kareji, and usually, it usually employs a little to no punctuation. Um, so one by Matsu, Matsuo Allard is an icicle, the moon drifting through it. Which is all one line, nothing. Um, and one from Arlene Mountain is pig and I, spring rain. Um, there's the one word which I mentioned, the Cord van der Hovel's uh, tundra. Um, and there's also four or more, which is um, not as oftenly used or not often employed. Um, haiku of four, and I'll read this little thing. Uh, haiku of four lines or longer have been have been written. Some of them in vertical uh, vertical haiku, uh, with only a word or two per line. These poems mimic the vertical printed printed form of Japanese haiku. Um, and this was interesting. I didn't realize this until I, I read this article that the translator Nobuyuki. Uh, you uh, let me get this right. Nobuyuki Yuasa. Yuasa. Yeah, Nobuyuki Yuasa. Uh, considered four lines more appropriate in his translations, um, being closest to the natural con- conversational rhythm of colloquial language, of the colloquial language of haiku. So, um, for Yuasa, uh, 
it he the since the 575 on pattern follows the kind of like the basic rhythmical structure of Japan uh, for him uh, translating in four lines follows that a little bit better um, and he that uh, he also said that the three lines did not carry the weight of a hoku and he found it impossible to use three lines consistently for his translations um, and the contemporary poet uh, John Martone has written vast numbers of vertical haiku um, there's also the circle, there's the fixed form, um, there's a bunch of other stuff out there, which I, I will get to. Um, just giving you a little taste to show that, um, you know, not haiku don't have to be in three lines. Um, that's more or less just kind of a standard convention. It's not a hard and fast rule. Um, I've definitely written haiku in four lines i think i've written one in five um most of the times haiku are written um like left justified i've seen some that um will play around with the indentation you know like have the first line left justified and then the second and the third line right justified um the basho's haiku um translated by david landers uh, Barnhill, which I talked about in the last episode, um, has them more of a cascading. So the the left the top line is left justified, the middle line is indented a little bit more or a little bit, and then the line below it is indented a little bit more. Which I think for him, I want to say it was to to capture sort of like the the flow or the you know more of the the converse, or the more of the the rhythm of the poems. Um, I've definitely done some where I have the like the first line and then a hard return and then the two lines or you know like the first two lines hard return sec the third line but it's broken up as like a double line you know it's like playing around with the indentation and for me that's more of like a the um i guess the designer in me in in recognizing um that if you want to to create the space or want to slow down the reader or create internal um internal space, internal whatever, um, you can play around with how the, the poem itself looks on the page. So I, I do like to have some like a gap between maybe the first line and the second two um, to emphasize the separation or to get like to, to visually see, because I would read it with that little bit of a break and to visually, you know, it's like you need, it needs a little bit more time than just a comma or a dash or a colon. Um, and, you know, like the, the indentation of it, you can kind of uh, imply certain relationships or you can, you know, like you can highlight a certain word or a certain phrase. Um, but I think that's pretty, that's at least in, in English language, that gets us up to like contemporary haiku. Um, I, I hope, I, I know that I probably went on a little bit of tangents. Um, this is... I tried try to make it as brief as possible. Um, there's a lot of information. I will put as as many as the articles that I found, as many as the um, like as many as the people that I mentioned up. Um, I encourage you to read all the stuff. Um, if you're interested, pick up Haiku Hand, the Haiku Handbook, and the Poet's Guide. Um, pick up the uh, Haiku Anthology. Um, there's another one that was, I think, forwarded by. 
Billy Collins go like haiku in English? Uh, let, me, let me make sure I can find this. Um, Yeah, it was published by, oh yeah, okay. Haiku in English, first hundred years. Um, who is it? It was edited by Jim Kaysen, Philip Rowland, and Alan Burns. Uh, it's also, it like, it runs from um, like Kerouac in the early attempts. I mean, I think, I think Pound's in there up to pretty damn contemporary. Um, I, have a, I have a collection of Kerouac haiku which some of them are haiku other ones are you know it's like a lot of them kind of kind of blur the line um oh there's one of his that is that is one of my favorites let me see if i can find it Kerouac. cannot spell Yeah, so one of one of Kerouac's haiku that I I love is um, missing a kick at the icebox door, it closed anyway. Which I I love like that that moment is just mm, that's so I'm I like to adhere to the like the haiku moment. Uh, I guess school loosely loose termed school of haiku writing um, because, and I've mentioned this many times on the the podcast that I, I'm much more attracted to poems that, that kind of arrive at a moment or you, you get dropped into this, this place. Um, Cause I like, I enjoy sitting there, sitting with, with those um, like just kind of, luxuriating in these these moments and um like calling out the stuff that like i think i don't want to well i don't i don't want to um i don't know superimpose my beliefs onto what shiki would or would not enjoy but i do think that the kerouac at least that that haiku adheres pretty closely to Shiki's idea of the sachet that there are these, you know, there's humor in this. There's, there's this little moment that it's like, there's, there's something, there's something there. You can't not necessarily put your finger on it, but there is a, a connection there that's being developed. There's this something that's, that's shareable. I don't know. I, I, I like it. I like those. I like those moments, and I like that with haiku. You can kind of. You don't need a page to to draw it to get yourself there. You've kind of willed everything down to the, the essence, which again is the I guess the more Zen influence, um, that there is a like the essential quality, that things have that you can get down to the true nature of of it, and that poem to me is, is there's a some true nature working in there. I don't know what it's about or what true nature it, it divulges, but there's some, some sort of emotional or just truth in, in that moment. And that's to me, like that's beautiful. That's gorgeous. That's something that deserves to be, um, 
memorialized just as much as a beautiful sunset or a rainbow or you know your maybe not your first, the birth of your first child but you know like those those moments that because I feel like those are the moments that um, and this might be what Shiki was going with with the sachet that so much more of life happens I think in the the smaller moments the everyday things that just kind of you know like you can have big life changing events I'm not I'm not saying that you can't but I feel like more often than not those are not the uh those don't happen all that often they're kind of they're every every so often i think thing um and when you don't have those the rest that you have is just sort of like the everyday day-to-day life and the super super small moments that comprise that lifetime it's like how, how much of your life is spent like walking somewhere or driving in a car somewhere or just you know sitting and just being and existing um and i think that there is an 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 inherent specialness or beauty in those moments that you know there's an there's a it exists out there and you're not you're not making these things beautiful it's just you're sort of reorientating your perception or reorientating your your context your circumstance with them to be like oh i can appreciate this and i i feel like at least for me personally it it helps it helps me stay mindful um and connected to things and i i've been experiencing lately some kind of disconnect um from you know like life and friends and my job and just sort of I feel untethered, just kind of bouncing around and like reading, reading poetry generally, but reading haiku specifically allows me to like reconnect and to be mindful and to start seeing things and to opening up the opening up of my perception and to just see, to see things, to, to notice the things that I miss. Um, and that like allows a certain level of peace or calmness or quietude or whatever whatever part of that spectrum for me that I need to maintain to be uh, functional and healthy it helps put me back there um, and I, I appreciate haiku for that and I, I write it really for that that, that you know that I'm hoping that there's a, that in in this moment of you know like I trying to close an icebox or like a a door or something and I kick at it and it doesn't close but it closes anyway like that's to there's something deeper than that I think going on even though it's like there's not really anything deeper than that going on but it's, it's hitting something that's that's deeper I think um, and to share it with someone you're not necessarily trying to share that there's a deeper thing but to share that's like you know yeah, this happened and if another person can connect it with that it's like that's I was talking with some friends at a going away party last night about um, is the internet a good or bad thing and I like I don't know if you can really answer it in that simple of a terms because I, I think that it really depends on how you utilize it and I think that like there's a shit ton of good that it can do because it's a it's a way to connect people and like the good that it has done in connecting people and showing ideas and I mean that can be dangerous because you have like white supremacists um, or you know like 
members of ISIS trying to recruit other people. Um, or, you know, like dicks and trolls on 4chan and Reddit um, that can join forces because they can disseminate similar ideas. But, um, you know, like I somebody brought up and I was thinking about this last night of, you know, like a trans person or a gay person in um, like rural America that has like nobody that they can reach out to or nobody that they can have contact to and they can get online and there are like support groups and chat rooms and you know like people on tumblr um or twitter just like somebody that you that you can reach out to and say you know it's like you can you can find that connection um and i would like to think that art is does that and it it, it paves the way for that sort of empathetic communication between two or more people um and haiku is i feel at least for me like the the absolute closest i can get to just a pure uh transfer of an emotional experience in writing i can do it with music pretty easily that 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 comes there's like very little actual translation it's just kind of direct transference but with writing goes through all these steps for me and haiku is about as i think is about as close as i can get to just the the emotional experience being being given to someone else and that that's that's my goal as a poet to trans to you know to transfer this thing and to to make to to hopefully open up and allow for a connection that another person didn't realize that they needed to make or that they have wanted to make and they couldn't do it or that, you know, even for themselves, that, that you are, you as an artist has given someone else a vocabulary to explain something that they've experienced. Um, so it's not, it's not even have to be a connection with someone else. It's like they, they could then become just more connected with themselves. Um, so I, I don't know. That feels optimistic and idealistic. Um, but I, I don't know. I know that there's there's a lot of other challenges and a lot of other obstacles to keep that all of that from being realized, but I appreciate art that you can you can kind of cut through a lot of shit with with art. Um, you can really reach people way deep down inside, um, and I don't know, like if nothing else that haiku is good for a laugh and if you need a good laugh or just a chuckle or just something to lighten the the weight or the pressure or whatever it is that you're dealing with or feeling it did its job i think um and with that uh i think i'm gonna call it an episode uh my throat really hurts <laughs> i've been talking for a while on top of the, like five hours i talked last night um but as always thank you so much for listening um Oh, I think I can probably mention this. I was contacted by oh, the uh, let me let me make sure I get the name of this right. The allpoetryradio.com contacted me uh, earlier this month and asked if uh, I would be willing to um, let them like host some of my my episodes um so if anybody's out there i mean listening however it is that you're listening if you found me through all poetry radio that's awesome thank you that's super cool um if you found me through soundcloud or youtube or itunes 
It's also super cool. Those are really kind of the places that I am right now. Um, as always, thank you for my international listeners. Um, I It's really encouraging to know that there are people outside of my kind of small circle of poets um, that I know in Baltimore that seem to, you know, at least get something, hopefully, out of an episode. Um, I don't know how many of y'all are return listeners, but, you know, first-timers, only-timers, welcome. Thanks for sticking around for as long as you have. Uh, hopefully you heard, stuck around long enough to hear this. Um, but, yeah, I in, a, in the United States, it is, uh, I think, a day or two into Ramadan. Um, so any, um, any people participating in that, I hope you have a, a good one. Um, it is Memorial Day weekend. Um, so, um, hope people are safe from whatever celebrations that they're doing. Um, if you've lost members of your family or people that you know in the service, um, my condolences. Um, I don't know. Do, do what you need to do this weekend. Whatever it is that you need to do, hope that you do it. Uh, and I will talk to y'all later.